This week on Writers Inc. You know, what else could turn an agent off? Yeah. Um, and a lot of people don't think about this, but let me ask you a question. Do you, do you know when the best time to query an agent is? Have we talked about this? Nope, no idea. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's In. So, J.D., we are here today to kind of introduce a, uh, a segment of the podcast that was unplanned, I think, but is going to turn out to be hopefully of great use to me and to a lot of our listeners uh, yeah, I mean, what, one of the things that I, I love to do is, is mentor other authors. And I've had so many people help me out. And I, I really want to pay it forward any way that I can. And I, I spent so many years working as a book doctor and a ghostwriter kind of helping people fine tune their novels. Um, I, I miss doing that. Um, and you know, you're, you've got a novel that you're working on getting ready to query. So figure, hey, why not? Let's let's use that as a, a project and take it on from start to finish and, and see what we can do with it. Yeah. And needless to say, I was absolutely thrilled. I, I'm, a, I'm a lifelong learner. I, I pride myself on being a student and to be able to learn from someone like you is just such a gift and I can't I can't wait to get into it because uh, we, we even backtracked a little bit we were originally going to start looking at the querying process and you said you know what let's take a look at your manuscript first and I'm glad that you said that because we've already had sort of a, 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 a I've already had a tremendous pivot that I think is going to make a huge difference in the book which we'll get into in this episode but uh, sort of backing up and looking at that process, starting with the manuscript first, because as you've said, if you if you throw up these red flags to an agent, it doesn't nothing else matters. There, you know, your your manuscript's going to get uh, chucked at that point. Yeah, and it, and it can be little things, whether it's just formatting, or in your case, you didn't have a title page. You know, little things like that. When somebody's going through a, a slush pile of a hundred different books, you know, you're you're giving them an excuse to put it aside before they even check out the the actual story. Um, so I, I, I try to, you know, whittle those away, get rid of them as much as possible, get the story as tight as we, we, we can. And that's kind of where we're at. We're just going to kind of use you. You're, you're a guinea pig yeah. at this point. <laughs> yep. We're going to, we're going we're gonna to get it as, as perfect as we possibly can. And then, and then tackle the querying process and see what happens. Yeah. Great stuff. So you're going to guys are going to get all that. I'll give you a little bit of a tease to set this up. Uh, JD asked me a question in this conversation about the best time to query an agent. So if you're wondering about that, this is an episode for you because it, it, it totally blew me away and I don't want to spoil it for the listener, but uh, it was it was revelatory and uh, a great insight. So looking forward to that. Cool. Let's go. All right. Let's get into it. Um, all right. So let, let's start with, you know, because we already talked about me. So you kind of have a handle on what I've done and, and where I'm at. So why don't we just talk about you? Like what, what got you into writing? Like, you know, what got you to the point where you are right now? Like what have you done in the past? Yeah, I started, uh, I've, I've written my whole life. I've been in, in education my entire life. And so I've been reading and writing forever, but I hadn't really tried my hand at novel writing until I was well into my thirties. And uh, I had picked up um, on writing as many writers do. And I, and I read that and I was like, okay, great. Now I know exactly what to do. And, 
which I was, was just looking at my desk because I, I had a copy sitting on my desk and I think my wife grabbed it. Like the only two books that are always on my desk are on writing and, and this one, which I don't know if you can see it, but it's drunk and white. Yeah. Um, elements of style. Yeah. Elements of style. Like those are the only two books I tell people they really need. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, Cause it's, it's kind of true. Well, I, I was a bit naive and thought, okay, well now King just laid it out. I know exactly what to do. And, uh, so I started in, in like 2007, 2008. Uh, at the time, my kids were like three and five years old. I had a full-time teaching job. So nights and weekends, I was working away on this epic fantasy because what better way to start if you've never written a novel to start with some <laughs> epic fantasy? Shoot for 300,000 words yeah, or so. I don't and... know what I was thinking. <laughs> it was terrible. And uh, But, but I, you know, I was kind of working my way through it. And then I got to a point where... I had a manuscript and I thought, okay, I'm going to start querying agents. And, and I, and I, and I kind of went through the, the process that a lot of people do. And, uh, and like many writers didn't have much success. You know, I was not getting any sort of interest whatsoever, which is no surprising because the manuscript was just God awful. But what really sort of made me start to think was I started getting, I, I was getting rejections and then I was starting to get no responses at all. And I was like, okay, like if I, if I go, if I continue down this path, like I'm just going to end up with, with nothing. And so I just, I did not work on that book anymore. So I shelved that. I, I threw it in a drawer and said, okay, that, you know, that was my learning novel. And, uh, and I, so then I started and over the course of the next 10 years, I slowly but surely built up this following through independent publishing. Um, I still went with, you know, I had professional editors and proofreaders and cover designers and, and uh, and was able, uh, you know, about 2017. So you know, um, eight 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 years or so later, I was making enough money that I could uh, I could leave my day job and and live on that. But I wasn't. But it wasn't like phenomenal, and it wasn't um, it wasn't like you know buying a Ferrari type of royalties. It was it was getting by, and uh, and then shortly after I went full time, which was 2017, right around that time, I f I discovered uh, Sean Coyne and StoryGrid. And, uh, you know, Sean was a big time acquisitions editor in New York for decades, and he developed this methodology for revision. And so I went to Nashville. I got certified to be a story grid editor, and I really did it because I wanted to improve my writing. That was more, like I wasn't necessarily interested in doing a ton of client work. I just wanted to become a better writer. I, I always do. That's I'm always looking for ways to become a better writer. So uh, I got certified in, in story grid editing and have then been applying what I learned that, you know, in that to my own writing. And about um, a year or so ago, I, I had an idea for a standalone sort of post-apoc horror novel, and it really it involved my dad who had passed away, and um, it was a real it was sort of a really emotional story for me. And I I didn't just want to self-publish it. I didn't just want to like throw it up there and just see what happens. And I thought, okay, this is the manuscript. Like if I want to see if I can play in the game with the big dogs, like this is this is the, my best shot. This is what I have to I have to use. And, and I tell people, people ask me all the time, especially in the indie circles, like, why would you even consider traditional publishing? And I'm like, I'm not a fool. Like, I, I understand that, you know, I, you lose control. I understand the royalty rate. I, I, I understand all that. For me, this is about upping my game, becoming a better writer and, and getting validation from the best people in the world. And, I, and I'm not ashamed of that. Like, I, that's, that's what this is about for me. I almost don't care so much about the end result as I do the process of getting there. Well, you know, that, that kind of touches on what we, we discussed uh, by emails leading up to this a little bit. You know, I, I totally believe in, in self-publishing, um, but I also believe in traditional publishing. And I think if somebody is going to self-publish a book, they should only do it if it's a book that the traditional publishers would have put out 
Um, but the, the author decided that the, the indie route is the better route to go for whatever reason. So like in my case, I've got books both ways. I've got books yeah. with random house with Harper Collins. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I've got the traditional guys, but I'm also self-publishing and it's because everybody brings different things to the table. Mm-hmm. Um, you can get a self-published book into a bookstore, but it's hard. Yeah. You know, you've got to have big sales behind you. Um, you know, you've got to have a track record. You know, a lot of people don't realize, but when you walk into a Barnes and Noble, for example, or a Waterstones in the UK, every shelf in there is bought and paid for. Yeah. So in a Barnes and Noble, like that alcove that at the front door is the most expensive place in the store to have your book. Uh, the next most expensive place is that new release table that, you know, you basically run into as you come through that door. Um, and then as you work your way through the store, everything gets cheaper and cheaper. But that new release table is anywhere from like twenty to $30,000 a week to wow. have a book sitting on there. And what I found when I started getting traditionally published, like I policed those guys really, really closely <laughs> um, because I knew my publisher paid for um, like in, in, with my uh, first or first traditionally published book, The Fourth Monkey. I knew they paid for those tables. So I started going into every Barnes and Noble I could find. Um, and I think there's 600 or so stores in the, in the country or something. I visited about 120 of them. Um, and, and I only found my book where it was supposed to be in about 40% wow. of the stores. And what I learned after, and I would walk in as a customer, I would basically go to the table and I would look at it. And if I didn't find it there, I would ask a manager, Hey, I'm looking for this title. And then I would wait and see where they went and got it from. Um, and what I learned is that Barnes Noble actually oversells that space. So even at that price, they, they oversell it. So then they leave it up to the individual stores to, you know, to deal with the table. A table's only got so much room. So sometimes they take that overstock, you know, the books that are supposed to be there that are paying to be there and they'll put them underneath the table, you know, like on the, the little sides. Um, sometimes they rotate them. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, these books are there. Oh. The other days, these books are there, even though everybody's paying to be there for the full week. Um, sometimes it comes down to, you know, do I have enough employees to even rotate the table? Um, you know, so some, you know, the book will end up back in the fiction section in alphabetical order, you know, until somebody points out that it's not supposed to be there. So, you know, even, so what I'm getting at is even something like Barnes and Noble isn't a sure thing. And from a total volume standpoint, I still sell, you know, probably 10 to, to 50 times more eBooks, um, as I do mm-hmm. print books. Um, you know, it's not that print is dying. I don't think that it is. I think for a little while there, you know, when the Kindle came out, it was a novelty item. So everybody wanted a Kindle. They wanted to read their books on there. They loaded it up and they realized, you know, for a lot of people, they didn't like reading books that way. You know, my wife is a good example of that. She loves to have a paper book. She was reading it a a couple months ago and she was in bed holding up this giant, you know, 30 pound book (laughs) like this. Her hand is shaking. She's got her book light up here, but she refuses to use the Kindle. Um, and for me, like I, I tend to use a Kindle when I'm um, like, if I'm reading in bed, I'll use a Kindle because it's backlit. If I'm running, I listen to an audiobook. If mm-hmm. I'm sitting out on my deck and I want to relax, I've got a physical copy. So I've kind of found my happy medium. And I think that's where most people kind of are. They yeah. figure out what format works for them. Um, so the, the point is, you know, getting into a, a bookstore is good for sales. People see that as validation. You know, if they mm-hmm. see a name there, you know, they're more likely to buy your book on Amazon or somewhere else just because, you know, that touch point, you know, five to 10 times, somebody's got to see your name before they remember who you are, that kind of thing. Um, it's not necessary though. Um, so I always tell people to, to look at the, the money, you know, how much are you getting? If they're throwing a big advance at you, if it's life changing, if it's worthwhile, then, then do it. Um, if they're doing a marketing campaign that's going to take you to places that you couldn't get to as indie, an indie author, do it. You can always self-publish an indie novel over here um, where you do have all those controls and just try to mix it up a little bit. Um, but the validation process, I think, is key. I mean, there's so many gatekeepers involved in, in getting a novel published traditionally. Um, you know, if that book actually makes it to bookshelves, you know that it's good. Yeah. And the indie, the indie side doesn't have that yet. And I really think because of the volume of books that are coming in on the indie side, 
as, as an author, if you want to succeed, if you want to be, if you want to make a living at this, you have to have a book that's at the same quality as that random house title that's coming out. Um, and then let other factors decide, you know, whether or not you, you want to go that route. Yeah, that that's a great point. And it, when you, when you emailed that to me, I had never heard anyone say it that way before in all my years in, and listening to podcasts and being on podcasts, I never heard anyone say your self-published book should meet the same level of quality as if you were trying to get it traditionally published. And that was, that was really, uh, illuminating. Well, Hugh, Hugh Howie is, uh, you know, he's my go-to guy when it comes to researching this type of thing. Like, I, you know, I, I still haven't met him. We have the same agent. We've communicated by email a few times, but you know, he was so, so successful as an indie and in, in what happened there. Like I followed his career very closely. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he was able to walk in, you know, with Kristen into you know, a traditional publisher with his spreadsheet, show them his, his sales numbers and say, OK, this is what I'm making without you. What can you do for me? Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, that's the position you want to be in as an author when you go in there. You, if, if they have all the, the chips, you know, it's you, you just become another cog in the wheel. And, and right. that's, you know, you're, you're not going to enjoy you know, a career like that, you, even if the money is good. I mean, there's just so many other factors that they may not be. Um, and I think the traditional publishers are seeing that too. I mean, they're, they're watching Amazon very closely, watching indie authors and, and you know, figuring out which ones are rising to the, mm. the top of that, that heap every, every year. Um, and that's where their focus is. And not just the Amazon imprints, but the, you know, the, the big guys too. Yeah. Um, and, and frankly, Amazon at this point really is one of the big guys. You know, I, I don't think anybody's figured out how to put them into that, that mix yet because they're, they're so different. But um, they control so much of this business at this point. Like you, you can't ignore you know what they're doing. I mean, with Dean Koontz going over to to and an Amazon yeah. imprint, um, that's a game changer, and and that's another one that I'm watching really closely just to see how they, you know, what are they going to do with somebody like Dean Koontz? Um, and you'd be surprised if you approach it as an indie author, they're not doing anything that you can't do. Yeah, yeah. So, but what I do find um, is when you know people do indie, you know, if, if they skip that whole traditional route, they don't go through an agent, they don't go through an editor, they don't go through a publisher. A lot of the problems that you know might exist in a book never actually get found, and the book ends up getting published, um, which is kind of where we're at with with the book that you and I have been yeah. talking about. Um, so why don't we go into so that's I think it's roughly seventy some thousand words. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm not sure how much detail you want to give as far as this book, but it's it's something you've been querying on, right? It it has, yeah. The the sort of quick overview is that uh, as I mentioned, this is something I I wrote for my dad who passed away really unexpectedly, and it was a story that I had brewing for a while, which is kind of bizarre, and, and save that for a, another time. But uh, I I I wrote it and I I had it edited. Um, through my own channels and I was fully intending to um to to see if I could get it traditionally published and I went to Thriller Fest where where we met specifically for the reason of Pitch Fest and I went and I uh I sat in front of 15 12 or 15 agents in that and that 2 hour period and every single one of them asked me for either a full or partial now maybe they do that for everyone I don't know that was my only experience in that but I felt like conceptually and who I bring as an author was attractive, but, but the, but really the litmus test is the book. Like the book has to be good or else none of that matters. Um, and, and so I, I, uh, I sent all of those agents and, and editors, uh, whatever they requested that was in, in July of 2019. And as of November of 2019, I haven't had any, any interest in it. And I was going to then, start querying again and just and query seven or eight uh, agents a week and, and just sort of, you know, over and over until 
until I had some interest. And that's when, when you uh, heard me on the other podcast and said, Hey, wait a minute, <laughs> let's talk. <laughs> yeah. I've helped in these scenarios before. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I love mentoring people. That, that's one of the most rewarding things that I do. Um, and, and I'm not going to lie. I'm writing a book about it too. I'm taking a lot of, you know, the success nice. cases that I've got, taking the emails back and forth, you know, here's our very first email where we started talking and here's all the correspondence in between. Yeah. Here's, here's where they got an agent. Here's where they got a publisher. Here's the deal that they got, you know, taking it all the way through. Um, cause I want people to see that, um, because it, you know, we're not recreating the wheel here We're you know, it's, it's stuff that's, you know, I've, I've done the same process over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I, I find that, you know, I, I tend to see a lot of the, the same problems. Um, you know, what else can turn an agent off? Yeah. Um, and a lot of people don't think about this, but let me ask you a question. Do you, do you know when the best time to query an agent is? Have we talked about this? Nope, no idea. So, it, and I learned this from talking to agents. Like I, I actually did a conference um, in Pittsburgh um, where they had a pitch fest type deal. Um, and I was one of their, their um, keynote speakers and I had lunch with all the agents like after they did their pitch fest. So I was in the room with, you know, 30 or 40 agents and, and basically, you know, like a fly on the wall, listening into the conversations between them about the people that they had just talked to and the books that they had just talked about. Um, and okay. So first of all, the best time to query an agent is 11 o'clock in the, in the morning on a Thursday. <laughs> Um, and, and this is why and think oh, yeah, about I got to hear this. Yeah. If, if you've got a, you know, a, a regular, like a corporate job or something, think about your own email box. Mm-hmm. You know, you walk in, you know, let's say Monday morning and it's full of mm-hmm. stuff, you know, from the weekend, from Friday or whatever, you know, agents are no different. Um, it more so really, because a lot of authors tend to, you know, work at nights and on weekends. So yeah. when they query an agent, they tend to shoot those query letters out, you know, Friday night, Saturday, Sunday, or whatever, Monday they're back to work. So they're, they're not doing it. Um, so an agent's inbox, the worst time to be in there is, is Monday morning. Um, so the rest of the week kind of plays itself out. But if you think about somebody's schedule by Thursday, you know, they're sitting there and, you know, they're trying to wrap up their week, you know, so they're not really taking on any new projects. It's the other way around. They're winding things down 11 o'clock in the morning. They're winding down for lunch. You know, you're not going to take on anything new at 11 o'clock knowing you're leaving at 12. Um, so that tends to be the absolute quietest time in their life, um, to, to get a message through. Um, you know, even, even first thing in the morning, like on a Wednesday or something, it's, it's still worse because they've, they're unloading everything that came in overnight. And, and some agents that I've talked to get anywhere from like a hundred to 300 queries a day. Oh my um, God. You know, so, you know, they, they open up their, their email box and, you know, they'll read the first sentence, delete, delete, mm. delete, delete, you know, they start flying through. And before you know it, it's, it's a, you know, an autonomous type reaction. They're just you know, bam, 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 going through and they, and they might pass over the best manuscript in the world. Um, so you kind of want to sneak into that, e- that inbox when, you know, that it's already empty. You want to be that one message that pops up in the middle of the day. Um, so yeah, at 11 o'clock, um, other things that turn them off are, are really basic things. Um, formatting. Yeah. Um, you know, every manuscript should, you know, it should have a title page that should have your name. It should have the title of the book. Um, you know, if it's not, you know, very clear as far as what type of book it is, that should be there too. You know, novel, fiction, nonfiction, whatever, uh, the total word count, um, your contact information, all that on the first page. Um, everything should be Times New Roman, um, double spaced uh, with a one inch margin. Um, and a lot of them are, are major sticklers for this. Um, so unless they tell you something different on their website, and some of them do, some of them will tell you to single space, some will tell you they want a mm-hmm. Word doc, some will say they want a PDF. Um, you know, it's got those little quirks, but you know, always always stick to those because if something comes in, again, greatest manuscript in the world, if it's in a you know an Arial font instead of Times New Roman, they're gonna be, oh god, man, just, <laughs> they just hit that button and it's gone. Yeah. Um, so like you don't want to handicap yourself straight out of the gate. 
you mm-hmm. know, with, with little things like that. So um, I sent a link and maybe we could put that in the show yeah. notes. Um, it's just a website that I, I tend to recommend people go to that, you know, it outlays the, the format itself, what, what everybody expects. Um, so, you know, try not to change that. Uh, the only time I deviate from that, and this is just in my own work, but if I've got, uh, let's say, text messages as part of the, the text of the book, oh. um, you know, or something different, sometimes I'll go with a different font for, for something like that to make it stand out. Right. Uh, but for the most part, always, you know, 12 point times New Roman. Um, then it comes down to some of the, the more grammatical stuff that we talked about. And I tend to see a lot of the same things over and over again. And the biggest problem for virtually every new author is passive voice and showing versus telling. Yeah. Um, and, and it comes down to the way we tell stories. You know, if I were to tell you right now about something that happened to me yesterday, you know, it's a past event. It's something that took place yesterday. So I'm going to tell it to you as if it were something that took place yesterday. Um, that's the way that we speak, the way that we tell stories. But when you write a book, you have to be in the now. You have to be telling that story as it's happening. Um, so you have to retrain your brain, um, which is, you know, essentially you have to lose passive voice and you have to lose, um, you know, showing versus telling. Yeah. Um, and it's a difficult thing to do because, again, we're, it's contradictory to what we've been taught um, and the way that we tend to work. Um, and you have to retrain yourself uh, to do that. Um, and it, you know, with practice, it, it, it helps. There's a website that I, I sent to you that I absolutely love called autocrit.com. Um, a U T O C R I T.com. Right. It's, it's a little pricey compared to some of the other ones. Um, you know, there's, there's a few websites that do this kind of thing, but it, it will catch virtually anything wrong from a, you know, a fundamental or technical grammatic standpoint, mm-hmm. um, like passive voice, like showing versus telling, um, filler words. Um, I tend to use the word just a lot. Yeah. Um, and like, I don't even know that I'm doing it. Like I'll, I'll write it, you know, four or five pages and I'll go back and I'll, I'll notice that I use the word just like six times in, in that text. Um, and most of the time you can go through and draw a line or just delete that word and the sentence flows perfectly. Um, but as it's coming out of my brain, you know, like it, it just seems like that should be there. Um, so I, I tend to, like, as a process, I'll, I go back in the morning and I read whatever I wrote the day before. Um, and, and make edits on that. And I, I tend to find that that's just enough time for it to be far enough removed for me to catch those little minor things. And I, and I work those types of details out. Um, the passive voice is a little tougher, you know, words like had and, you know, all those um, that, that, you know, they're part of our, our language and they feel right, like as you're writing them. Um, so something like autocrit, it does red flag them, it finds them for you. And you can rewrite that paragraph, which we kind of played around with, with one or two of yours, right. um, and get it to work without them. And once you do that enough times, it, it retrains your brain and your writing will actually, you know, like you'll virtually work that problem out of your writing. Um, but it, but it takes time. Um, as a general rule, I tell people they need to write about a half million to a million words before they even find their own voice. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's just practice, just like anything else, like any kind of muscle that you've got to, you've got to work on. Um, an exercise that I used to give people, I would tell them to read a novel halfway, go to the, the 50% mark and then close the book and then write the other half. Mm. You know, you, use the same characters, use the same story, but just sit down and just write, you know, without knowing how the story goes, write, write it out. Um, and, you know, that, that tends to give, you know, it gives you a, a springboard, a, a place to start instead of just, you know, trying to, to you know, go from the, from a blank slate. Right. Um, and a lot of times you can take that second half that you just wrote because now it's totally different from the real first or second half of the book. Um, and you can write a first half and, you know, marry the two together and you might end up with a novel. Um, but either way, it's, it's a, it's a great way to, to practice. So um, question about the, the, um, passive voice, uh, it, is is perfect past tense then it's technically passive voice right i mean you should try to avoid that 
you should it's it's like anything else like a, a dog should have four legs unless the character calls for a three-legged dog like okay you know, like like you can use passive voice if it if it's necessary to the story um i actually talked to king about this um because in on writing um he he says that he only uses present tense for short fiction and he uses past tense for 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 novel length stuff um and then he wrote the mr mercedes series and you know i'm halfway through the first book i'm like this is all in present tense like what what's the guy doing so i shot him an email and asked him um and he gave me an answer that made perfect sense he said he knew going in that the book was going to have a lot of flashbacks in it um so what he ended up doing is he write he writes the you know the now sections the current in in present tense and the flashbacks in past tense um so now he's not using passive voice anymore because if you because if you actually start in past tense then to do a flashback you're going to passive voice in order to you know so it's just kind of like one notch back and this was something that he's he's learned over time like if you go back and you read the shining you know because when you hear this kind of thing it jumps out at you like i went back and read some of his early stuff to see you know what he was doing back then but in the shining he wrote that in past in past tense and he actually wrote his flashback scenes in present tense um so he was already playing with the tenses trying to figure out Mm. you know a way to do that um but if you do like he said write your your scenes you know like if the bulk of the book is going to be in you know, current time, but you're going to have a lot of flashbacks. If you do present tense for your current time and past tense for the back, it's uh, the past. It flows perfectly. Um, and that little, you know, you know, switch like to the reader makes, makes sense. And you, it doesn't jump out as much as like a passive voice type scenario does. Well, I, I think that's, uh, I mean, I'd love to hear your opinion on this. Uh, the fact that we are, I haven't started reworking this book yet. I'm, I'm at chapter one should I consider rewriting it entirely in present tense with my flashbacks as past? If there's going to be a lot of flashbacks, then I, I would absolutely do that. Okay. Um, and, and it's not a difficult thing to do. When I wrote Dracul, um, there's you know sections in there. Um, you know, most of the book is epistolary, you know, so journal entries and, and things like that. Right. Um, but there's what we call now sections, which is Bram in the, the current moment. Um, and my editor, Mark Devani and I, we went back and we wrote that in, present tense we wrote it a past tense we wrote it a first person i rewrote it a third person mm. um it only took me you know like a day or two to, to go through the whole book and, and make those changes um but you know we wanted to be, see exactly which one worked the best yeah. um and i did it so many times i'd have to actually look at the book to see which one we even ended up with but i think it's i think it's um third person present tense for those sections um and then past tense on everything well else. and for forsaken you had all of those flashbacks to the the witch documents and, and stuff right but Ooh. but you wrote that in in past tense i believe i wrote I, I wrote it in past tense but because they were separate chapters with a separate character like and you know i think the date was even stamped at the top mm-hmm. you, you knew that it was you know something that took place a long time ago got it okay so um, you so, you were still able to avoid past perfect tense in that situation right yeah okay. yeah so i always try to find a way around it okay. um you know, and I, I tend to find a lot of the big name authors play with this stuff. Um, Koontz told me that he actually writes um, his, his bad guys sometimes in, in one tense and his good guys in another mm. um, in the same novel. And I actually stumbled into that. I had an ARC copy of one of his, his books and I was going through and I, I thought it was a typo because he kept jumping back and forth between the two. And then I started realizing, hey, there's a pattern to this. And then I asked him about it and he said, yeah, sometimes I do that. Like if a bad guy's not you know perfectly clear, um, I think he said Intensity was the first book where he actually purposely did it. Um, but you know, like he's not coming out and saying that this is the bad guy, this is the good guy, but because he makes those changes intense for the reader, you know, their brain is distinguishing this is one type of person and this is a different type of person. Um, so it's a subconscious change. Right. Um, so you can use a lot of those tense things to, you know, to drive part of your story without the reader even realizing what you're up to. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cause it is a significant, a significant portion of my manuscript is, is look back and flashback scenes. 
because uh, it's a it's a the main character is in his early 20s and he's talking about what happened before this apocalyptic event so I, I just know off the top of my head not even a percentage but i know that it's pretty significant so that that's probably something i should i should do yeah i mean it, that would be great for the format um and yeah. it's also really good practice mm-hmm. yeah okay that's great. All right. Um, so I'm looking at the summary report for your book. And again, this is all from Autocrit. Right. Um, this is actually becoming, even though this is a really good tool for authors to use, a lot of the publishers, a lot of agents actually have software like this where they'll run manuscripts through it before mm. they even read it um, because they know that these things are, are red flags, which which is kind of scary because in a way they're using AI to determine you know what authors they're going to talk to or what manuscripts they're actually going to read or what books are going to get published. Um, I, I think that trend is actually going to continue. At some point, there's going to be AIs dictating to yeah. the large publishers. This is probably a big seller. This one isn't because, and it's going to spit out a list of things that need to be fixed. It's a good um, first pass filter is what it, it's going to save them a ton of time, I would think. Yeah, it definitely saves some time, um, but it's, you know, it's not perfect. Yeah. Um, you know, sooner or later it might be. <laughs> um, it, it, it honestly scares me. It kind of reminds me of doctors. Like I used to have an old school doctor and he was, he was like, I think almost 80 years old when I stopped going to him and, and he didn't use like everything was up here. Yeah. Like he had seen it all. He had been there. He had you know, done that. Um, and then when I started going to a new doctor, like they would, you know, anytime I had a problem, they would send me in for blood work. And the first thing they would do is grab that report and whatever the report told them they had to do, that's what they did. Yeah. You know, it's like, there was no real common sense anymore. Now it was a computer telling this doctor what to do. Um, and I kind of see the publishers going that way, um, you know, for, for better or worse, but you know, there's just, there's so much money at stake. Um, but it, you know, as an author, if you can use a tool like this to fine tune your own writing, it's, it's worth it. And like, I used autocrit on everything that I was, I was publishing before, um, until I got to the point where I, I just, the problems just didn't exist in my own yeah. writing anymore. You train, you um, trained yourself to avoid yeah, this. And you, yeah. yeah. And you just, you know, you can't fix them until they, you know, they get thrown right out in front of you mm-hmm. and, and you're forced to fix them. And then, you know, your, your brain just learns not to do it anymore. Yeah. That that's pretty good. It kind of sets the context for what we're doing. I mean, I think um, you gave me some specific things to take a look at. A lot of it came through that autocrit report. So I know that uh, you know passive voice, showing versus telling, those are the big ones. I think some of the other ones, like redundant words, um, that kind of stuff, is just that's kind of low level things. I don't think well, need to, why don't too we much do this just, just so we get something on tape? Yeah. Um, Let's, you know, we'll, we'll create a game plan. So you're not going to query any more agents at this point. Right. You know, you've decided you're going to try to rewrite this book and work out some of these issues before you, you take it back out to people. Yes. Um, so let, let's focus on that first chapter. Okay. You know, just, just you know, there's, there's no reason to do it in big chunks, but let's get, you know, the tenses right, get the passive voice out of there, get it perfect. And then once you understand, you know, once that first chapter is the way that you want it, um, then, you know, move on to the next one and the next one and the next one. I think you're going to realize it goes very fast once you figure out what you want to do. Yes. Um, and, you know, go through that whole book. And it's not very long. I think you were at 70,000 some words. Right. Um, which again might actually be one of those red flags for an agent because you're a little shy of where they like to see you. Like mm. 80 to 100 is kind of the, the, the sweet spot. Okay. Um, so just something to keep in mind. I and mean, if you if you have a scene where you think you can throw a little bit more in there, it might be worthwhile. Okay. Um, you don't want to pad it because a lot of times those things jump out. Like Yeah. But, you know, just be conscious of it. If you can get another 10,000 words in there, that's going to put you in that, that sweet spot that they like to see you. Okay. Um, and we'll just go from there. We'll get through the entire manuscript, work out all these issues. And then once that's done, then we'll work on a query letter, you know, create a good pitch, um, come up with a strategy to go after agents and, and take it to the next level. Excellent. Um, all right. Uh, when you first sent me that report, I was a, a bit overwhelmed, but then I kind of <laughs> settled down. I'm like, all right, it's just one step at a time. And, uh, and I'm up for the challenge. I'm excited for it. Yeah, I know you can do it for sure. Yeah. And I'm appreciative of you helping me out because, uh, 
you're the pro here, man. It's it's great to it's, it's great to get your guidance. I'm I'm uh, very appreciative. Oh, uh, we're gonna have fun with it. Cool. Wait, wait, wait till you get an agent and a publisher. <laughs> we'll, we'll get it. We'll make it happen. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.